Hi guys, uh, just a quick note before the beginning of this episode. I just want to let you know that uh, Jeremias on this episode, he was recording in from his headset because he was out working in the field. Um, but we really wanted to do this interview together with uh, Joe Flowers. Um, so I apologize in advance for the kind of audio quality at certain points, but hopefully it doesn't take away too much from the interview, which was a really fun one. Um, so yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it and let us know what you think. Take care. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Trial by Fire. Our guest today is none other than Mr. Joe Flowers. Anybody who maybe knows his work, he uh, he's the founder of Global Bushcraft. Uh, I believe you're based in North Carolina. Is that right, Joe? Yep, and it's uh, Bushcraft Global. Yes. Um, oh, Global Bushcraft. Bushcraft Global. Global, this gets confusing. Global Bushcraft right. Symposium is just in England. Uh uh-huh, of course. And you're also um I suppose most well known for being a knife designer and or general sort of tools and, and blade designer uh for tops knives, condor and things like that. Um do you do you ever get bored of talking about knives? Or is Never. that like one of your No <laughs> <laughs> Extremely uh I mean, what is it up to 150 or so designs you've got kind of out at the moment? Yeah, if not um, more now, I'm very, very blessed to be able to, you know, use the knives a lot. And I think that's kind of where, um, you know, it set me apart from a lot of other designers just going out and doing stuff with the tools. I suppose in some kind of way, I was, I thought it would be interesting to talk to you not about knives sure. this because I'm sure there's like, a ton of content out there about your knives and the stuff that you do and the stuff that you have done. And of course I, I, I really do want to kind of dive into that stuff as well, but what, that's why I kind of asked you, like if you ever get tired of talking about it, because there's a huge gamut of things that you practice, you know, you've got a background in zoology and ethnology, you know, you obviously travel the world and you've got this almost like a, like a quintessential old school style, like what people, ex- ex- you know, think of like an explorer where you're like literally sitting with tribes, learning how to, you know, using their tools and things like that. And I suppose how much of that is an inspiration to your kind of tool making and knife knife making side of things and how much of it is like uh, sort of an escape from that? You, you know, it's, that's a really good question. I got into knife stuff because I loved animals and, and loved exploring. I'm a zoology major, entomology minor, and actually worked for uh, the Department of Entomology at NC State for a long time. But during that time, oh, wow. you know, every time I was out there doing field research, I was still testing out all my kit and trying different knives like every day because mm-hmm. it got way too many. And it all seemed to like, you know, come together. Now, I never was, I don't know, an, an engineer. Um, so that might be one one answer of, of why I didn't get burnt out is because I'm not thinking about it numbers wise, really. Um, although I had to learn AutoCAD off of YouTube. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it, it all came together to like the zoology. I always would go exploring because I'd love to uh, uh, find different types of interesting animals and, and especially insects and reptiles and amphibians. And I really like hot environments. And I also like big knives so where where do you put all that together the jungle and, right. and down in south florida and right and it all kind of comes together 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can totally imagine the the practical side of like drawing in AutoCAD and then like getting out into those very sort of demanding, challenging environments and and trying out the things that you've maybe in theory thought hmm, this could work and then in practice actually seeing if that is the case. And and it really is cool in practice too, because I mean, just on this last trip, I literally got back home like this Friday and I'm still picking at like sores from me. But um, right, right. On, on this last trip, you know, when I thought I knew my crap, I knew my stuff about machetes, you know, I, I realized on this trip how much um, like a taper in a machete design where it's thick on one end and goes thin to the other end, how important that is for the flex of a, an object and, and where there's stressors on that, you can have handle problems. But if it flexes in the middle of the blade, you're not going to have that problem. And I mean, it's almost the same stuff as if you make a bow. Sure, sure. It, it's it like all, where the tension is and like kind of where that sort of uh, stress points are and things like that. Right. And, and you know, it's one thing to give it to somebody and have them whack the heck out of a very hard tree, which is really, really fun, by the right. way. <laughs> but when you have, you know, like no, we found out about that stressor when we were getting hard a palm you know, at the very top of a, of a palm tree. And it's just through use of over and over and over again, getting familiar with the object, you know, you learn more about it. Yeah, that's, it's, 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 it's very nice to have that sort of direct, I guess, direct feedback of something that you can sit and draw on and then being able to take it out yourself into the field and see if your ideas actually are worth anything. Sure, right there sure. and then and I, and I really like the it's like the actual because a machete is like quite a specific tool i mean i don't own one i've never been to the jungle so i have no need to ever own one unless i am there but give it time <laughs> yeah i'm sure well actually funny enough i found that the more i've gotten into the outdoors i've gone further north instead of further south um and that's actually another question i had for you like what what kind of like was it the etymology side of things, maybe the diversity of the types of animals and, and kind of insects that you get in that part of the world that drew you there? Because, yeah, for me, it's like, I, honestly, that kind of environment scares the shit out of me. <laughs> I'd much rather go, I'd much rather go north where it snows a lot rather than like, you know, but I mean, every, everybody's preference, but what drew you to like sort of those hotter sort of humid climates? Um versus maybe because you're because obviously you live in a very cold part of the world as it is so you know surely you should be designing or you could be designing knives for your part of the world yeah and you know the well first off you kind of answered uh your question i'm scared of the north <laughs> um right I, i'm working on that actually uh jeremiah so i'm really interested in if i said your name right i apologize um about uh, you said it you said it a million times better than 99 percent of the people do so, uh, <laughs> you're good. also give that time but um yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in in bumping my uh uh um cold weather so and i'll circle around back to your question but um sure. i'm interested in bumping up my cold weather but you know that one of the reasons it scares me is because i'm a baby of cold weather but to, to answer your question, there isn't so many animals that I can just see everywhere. It's not like sensory mm. uh, uh, overload where there's just life everywhere. It's just so cold and, and mm -hmm. all that. And I'm a, I'm not sure if I get bored. But then, you know, th mm -hmm. that's just me. How how I am. Not not saying that that's boring or anything like that. But man, I did rod dogs, and doing this with sleigh dogs might be right up my alley. 
you, you like you if 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 you if you get bored when you're in and around uh, sled dogs, then um, you're not focusing on the dogs. They, <laughs> right. they, See, that's perfect. It, it takes it takes so there's so much just just as it is when zo- in zoology and things like that. I can imagine that there's so much nuance in every single movement and everything that they do, and and you can you can, you, can, you can you can tweak your your. You, you can tweak forever and still not get the result you want, but you can always do better. Yeah, you know, I mean, with, I, with, maybe that's with it animal with husbandry too. in general. You can you can always do better. You're never you're never fully learned or a professional or anything like that. Mm. And as soon as you do, Every your dogs will day. take you back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, your, your your dogs will take you back to the ground again, back on 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 the earth again, sure. and tell you like, hey, you did not pay attention, so now we're being little rascals. <laughs> My my dad used to train bird dogs, and he would say something very similar to that, too, about you think you got it until they tell you not. And I I don't know, that really really motivates me to go, you know, down south is because there's so many different animals, and I really enjoy, you know, heat and and humid weather a lot more. So when it gets wintertime up here, I kind of freeze and go into my design mode and just look at books way too much. But I, I really think that, you know, the animals and the environment together kind of play a part in how I uh, have a great time out there. And, you know, that's why I think, hey, maybe I should change my thoughts and go up north with a whole pack of pups. Yeah, for sure. Like it's it's uh, well, I'm 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 um, I'm never going to tell anyone that it's a bad idea to to do. <laughs> so so uh, I am very supportive in that idea. Yeah, you know, it's it's where down in the jungle, we kind of had people who do this stuff. And it was like, that would be great to bring people on this experience. You know, it's I'm sure there's stuff at least here in the North America where you can do the same thing where I can just pay a guide to take me out for a dog time. Yeah, for sure. Like, I, I know I know that there's, of course... You have you have all of Alaska, and then there are mushers in the UP, and and yeah. uh, a little bit everywhere. As as long as you have snow, you have some sort of crazy person that have dogs. <laughs> I guess it's just to to do, to, so do some, to do some homework to to make sure that you end up with the with a uh, with a, a good musher because uh, there's just as in any right. any line of business there's. <laughs> people that might do things there's in cowboys. a way that is there, there's there's cowboys in the negative sense in ireland and things when if you get like a guy to do like a dodgy guy to like do your plumbing or your electricity or something like that uh, it's like an old phrase a guy like your 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 mom or your maybe your granddad be like that guy's just a fucking cowboy man like he's not really he's, he's not trained I've not heard that <laughs> there you know i just like that with the jungle i thought like okay I, i've been doing this for a while i know my stuff last trip i saw the most dangerous animals on one trip than i ever have it was crazy oh wow what kind of animal is that uh well, you know, I'm crazy about going after snakes, and and down in the jungle where where we're at, it gives me the shivers. It, it no, like everything lives by not being seen. Mm. Um, so we'd be lucky to see like three snakes in like two, twelve days. Um, I don't know who put the press bulletin out about this one, but the spot where we were at, we saw three a day. And um, it was cool because two of them were nice snakes, really beautiful, kind of like a king snake. But the other one possibly was a really, really dangerous snake. And so when you get down to that area, and actually this is kind of true for any tropical area, 
like after about a day of activity, it starts to press um, and push animals away. So we stopped seeing so many snakes, but man, the spiders, for some reason, they weren't like huge on this trip, but they were just everywhere. And so there was this one guy, you know, down there was kind of out of his element, you know, getting to know it. And on the second day, there was this big, huge banana spider or wolf spider species, I think on them. top of his bag and he's like joe can you come over here and move it and i was like okay nonchalantly <laughs> and um it was he wanted me to come see it too to see if it was really dangerous okay, and okay. honestly it wasn't that dangerous of a of a spider but th- i took like a stick or a leaf like at the end of a stick to like move it off of his thing and it looked up at the stick and reared back and i was like oh cool let me get a picture and then it jumps airborne oh. at the stick and i never seen a spider that aggressive fuck hell and as soon as it hit the leaf, a pepsis wasp, which is kind of like this called a tarantula hawk or a, a wasp that does this sci-fi <laughs> thing where it catches uh, catches spiders alive, lays an egg on them, that the larva hatches, eats the spider alive while it's paralyzed, oh, man. catches the thing out of the air, and they start fighting it out on top of this guy's bag oh like david At- and i was like doing a david attenborough world du- or worldwide <laughs> wrestling like impression and it starts going down in the middle of the bag and it goes into his bag oh we're like, crap. god and so i get one of the guides the the real yakuna the tribesmen down there mm-hmm. to come help me go through the bag because they're better at this than i am they live down there i don't i know my you know areas of expertise and sure. he's much better at picking through the bags because it's a monday right we go through the bag. We don't find the dang spider. The wasp emerges out. We cannot find the spider, but we pick up the bag and as sure as heck a scorpion scuttles what out from right fuck? underneath it. And this is all within like five minutes. And I was like, man, I don't know what you got over here, but uh, uh, this is some like New Jack City level Harlem danger. God damn, it sounds like an episode of like, I don't know, Pokemon or something. You got all sorts of shit. Yeah, it was there. right there. Oh my God. And so we uh, made a big fire and smoked out his whole camp and made it pretty safe for him. Oh, um, but I'm- it was like, couldn't have happened to any more like genuine dude and he, he wasn't as into spiders as i am of course i'm like tripping out over it right and it's like this is so cool that's my pack man and how big was that was a was a wasp to be able to pick a spider out of the clean out of the air i mean that is intense now this particular species wasn't a huge size um at least to me you know for where i'm from in, right. in the north carolina north america we have huge uh pepsis species so i would say Oh, I can't do it to meters. Um, maybe about like a thumb okay. size. A spider. Um, wasp or spider? N- wasp. Jesus the, Christ. The spider was a little bit smaller. I have seen wasps out there with orange antenna. They're Pepsis wasps too, parasitoids, that I thought were hummingbirds at first. And I was oh like, oh, my God. let me see this beautiful hummingbird. And I was like, man, that's a big hummingbird. And then I look at, oh, my dear Lord, that is a wasp. But um, they're pretty gentle. That's insane. I am so happy that 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 I the only thing I really have to worry about is the big moose. I can see them. It's easy to spot them, especially in in, in the winter. So that and that that's what I have to worry about. Everything else is just you know keep yourself warm, and uh, and don't be a, a you know stupid person when you're outside. But having to add all of those things to to your sort of everyday mental capacity would be uh, it would be uh, it would be a lot for me to get used to that mm. i would wonder though like what like it's funny you should say that you're because 
for a lot of people, the north is extremely intimidating, and for a lot of people, the jungle is extremely intimidating. But I, I would imagine it's like you know, on a day to day thing, you kind of start to forget about. <clears throat> not that you become complacent, obviously, but you kind of. It's almost like you said, uh, Joe, out of sight, out of mind. Like if you if you see six snakes in the in the space of a month, then you maybe are not necessarily thinking about these things all the time. No more than if you were in the north and you were thinking about. I don't know, let's say falling through the ice, for example, or something like that. Um, I think I think people tend to like very quickly acclimatize their sort of normal state of being. And I'm thinking of even like in extreme circumstances like war and like soldiers, like, you know, for anybody who's just like was dropped into the middle of a war zone, they would be freaking the fuck out. But somebody who's maybe spent a year or two years there. No, I don't know. Obviously, I'm not speaking from experience, but some i think the human mind is pretty good at getting used to its environment yeah well i mean there there's a couple of things that happen down there and and um don't let me forget to talk about uh, uh clients but at least at least for me you know um we come from tropical areas you know and part of our human story and you you the the heat sucks. Okay. That part kind of sucks until you acclimatize to it. But, um, you start getting like a jungle sense when you're down there. Once you see how the, the tribesmen are acting, uh, you just be more aware of where you're walking. You start to listen to sounds more. You're, you're able to have better, more aware of your peripheral vision. You know, you, you, you start getting better balance right away because you're watching other people be good at it. And, and, um, you know, it becomes, you become, at least for me, a lot more naturalized down there. Um, you know, I go barefoot a lot of the time, a lot of no-nos and, and it, you, you, it taps you into a part that you just, you know, you can almost get addicted to because it's so fun doing that. And I really felt like learning that down there has helped me become a much better hunter up here. Um, and, and help me be more aware of details in the woods. But as far as like being, you know, uh, afraid of these areas, it's just like up North, um, you know, once you do it, you love it. And then we say the most dangerous thing down there, I used to think it was a joke was people wanting to stay. And I, I, I kid you not, I've had to push people onto planes before I've had people come down six times, uh, two people from Serbia, one guy's coming for his, uh, second, well, he came for his second time, a lot of repeat customers, because once you figure out it's not a green hell, it's, it's a green heaven. And, in and, and everything there, you know, lives by being chill and relaxed, except for that one spider, you know, you can get through most of the time. Um, you know, we did get one guy who, uh, one guy did get bit, but he was a guide. He should have known better. Um, and he, and he lives down there. Um, so it takes two people to cut themselves, experts and beginners. But, uh, uh, you know, we have never really had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, I learned it from a cabinet guy. A that's, cabinet that's maker. A um, that's a good saying. But, one. you know, the, the people who just come down there and uh, just start looking around and they're careful when they start going through their bags and just realize, holy crap. Hypervigilant and. Yeah. And, and they miss it. They don't want to leave by the, the seventh day in the bush. You know, like, oh, we have wow. to go back to reality. That sucks. God damn, that's so cool. I mean, yeah, it's genuinely the only thing that stopped me going down that way. Well, apart from money, of course, is is actually fear. It is genuinely, I would be afraid. I don't know how I would react in a jungle environment. I really do not know if I would hate it or not, and, and or just be terrified because I don't like spiders <laughs> i just don't like yeah. that kind of thing yeah we've we've cured like two people of, or one person for sure of arachnophobia down there but um 
you know, nobody really is just like, Hey, let's pick up spiders. Um, right. Right. Except right. for me sometimes, but, um, All right. <laughs> like it, it, once you're aware of them, you see what it's about then you just go, Oh, okay. I need to wear my boots more in this area. Oh, okay. There no spider has any right mind being around here. So it's just, it kind of, and, and the thing is you don't just want to be thrown into that environment. You know, I was thinking if I'm going up to the UP, I don't want to just be thrown in there. I'd want to like slowly Ease into get into it. The, and- yeah. And, and that's what we do for like two days beforehand. Great. They get great. like nice beds. We do night hikes on, uh, on the natural reserve so that you guys can see dangerous stuff like palm trees with thorns and things. So it, it's not like, Hey guys, guess what? Here's National Geographic dumped onto your backpack. Right, you know? right, right. That was kind of my next question because, um, I was going to ask you, like, what are the, I would love to, like, maybe talk us through a little bit, like, what are the logistics of all involved in, like, getting yourself down there with you? Before, uh, before that, I would like to actually dial it back a little bit further in history. Cause you, you have a company called Bushcraft Global, and you specialize on the jungle. So before we get to how you do it now, I would be very interested in hearing how did you, if you grew up in North Carolina, how did you end up with a bushcraft company that specializes in going to the jungle? Because that's not necessarily a clear correlation between where you grew up and where you are right now. You know, I started with uh, knife designing, always loved knives, started writing about knives um, while in college, while doing zoology stuff. I'd go out there while I was going through beehives and take pictures of knives and write articles. Started writing for knife um, um, magazines and, and other magazines. I got uh, pretty big into print, like 10, 12 different magazines, including Backpacker. Um, and, and so I got pretty well known in the knife world um, as far as just writing. Um, and it's a, it's a tight-knit group. And uh, so I started uh, working for a knife company um, with designs because I love machetes. Um, and I called up a guy named Jeff Randall who does Essie Knives. Um and, uh, I said, Jeff, um, I've been dying to go on one of your trips. I was like maybe 23 at the time. Uh, how about I try and put together some kind of deal where, uh, you do some, um, we get, make you some machete blanks and, uh, you guys put handles on them. He's like, I think that's a great idea. And, you know, he'd put down there, made in El Salvador and let me come down on one of the trips. Um, and I loved the jungle a ton. Um, so fast forward up to around like 2011, I went down, um, I tried out for a, uh, a contest cause I wanted to go, uh, with this guy across South America, kind of like Ed Stafford. Right. Um, but a different guy. Um, and, uh, so I won the contest cause I had jungle training. And so I went down there for a month when this guy had dengue fever. Oh shit. And so, yeah, I was, so I got down there and I was like the only American and he was getting pretty sick and, um, a, cu- a couple of other things happened, but I had to take over his expedition while he was getting better. <laughs> oh shit. Talk about Toronto. Was like, yeah. Well, it wasn't too bad. Cause I always like during the summertime and stuff, I work for like kids, uh, groups and things and right, uh, right, also right. do some, um, some, some, uh, riparian, uh, river buffer, uh, stuff with Blue Ridge Discovery Center. Long story short, you know, it was just like six people on this expedition that was camera crew. So I found, did what anybody would probably do there and went to a church, found a, a American missionary and, and told him what's up. And he helped me right away um, to store the camera equipment. I got them all settled, got him all settled. But Joe went down to jungle to go in jungle, not mess around mm-hmm. jungle town. 
Right, right, right. <laughs> Joe was getting frustrated after everything was all taken care of. I said, take me to a place where I can find snakes. Okay. And so I went to this place called Tanamboca. Um, they had a serpentarium at the time. I got to talk about the guys, about some of the different species they found out about. And they're like, okay, you need to do a night walk. And I'm okay. Joe wants to do night walk. Joe like bug. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I go out on this night hike and I see tiny little possums the size of mice Spiders as big as my hands, monkeys, iguanas everywhere, you know, all all this stuff. My first night, poison dart frogs, um, just like everything you could see off of like Discovery Channel on a Saturday morning. Wow. And my mouth was just like open. I couldn't like sleep until like four in the morning. And so I sleep on the ecotourism uh, uh, reserve. And this Serbian German dude kind of sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger comes out and he's like, hey, what do you do, man? And I'm like, oh, I design knives. And he goes, really? I love knives. Come to my house. Turns <laughs> out he was the owner of the whole property, designed all of the um, all of the uh, zip lines that he has on the property. His house is a tree house up in the trees. Wow. Um, and he showed me all this survival stuff from some tribes that he hunts with. And he talks about some logistics that he's worked with Nigel. Um Nigel, I can't remember last name. Gibbons, I can't remember his last name. Um, with the BBC and stuff, and uh, okay. that's um, Gorn, my partner for uh, business partner um, in uh, Bushcraft Global. He's uh, okay. the logistics coordinator down there. He's a knife maker now. I got him um, back into knife making, and he's doing very, very well. Uh, this this guy can speak five languages. He's designed all these knives with Tanaboka <laughs> knives. He goes into the, the junkyard and gets a VW Volkswagen spring, and then he makes 5160 knives, and he goes into his backyard, and he gets all this beautiful redwood and all this, all this freaking tropical wow. uh, exotic hardwood shit that he has just growing in his backyard, and he puts handles together and sells them now That's amazing. as his like, side job. That's so and I cool. got him... It's been great. So he's like, yeah, um, I know these tribes that nobody else can talk to. I'm like, okay, tell me more because we're sitting there playing with their with their uh, bow drill kit, their um, hand drill kit, right. um, trying to do it. And um, he's like, yeah, I, can, I, I sometimes do these meetings with them. So I was like, okay, well, I could bring people down here if you, we can get this tribe, other guys, and do this kind of survival stuff, but not training well, I, want, I don't want to have to like certify people. Okay. We want to make it an experience. Yeah. And he's like, okay, cool. And uh, um, so the first tribe is the Matisse tribe. They were first contacted in 1975, 1980. They're still very primitive. Wow. Um, they, they, they come out. They've been on the front cover of National Geographic. We have the Yukuna, the Huitoto, the Takuna, the uh, um, Kokoma. Uh, and, and a bunch of other tribes too. One one guy, like one guide, comes out from each of them as like one of the helpers and guides, and shows a bunch of their ways. Um, but uh, yeah, I, if I hadn't gone to that uh, place, I went in the start of Bushcraft Global, and um, uh, because him and I have been working together, it's been kicking up. I've gotten him into knife designing for multiple companies. Um, we're doing. YouTube projects down there on the property, uh, production companies are hiring us. So it's kind of just gotten more and more ridiculous. And did, uh, did, did your bushcraft interest come sort of before you started your zoology studies, or is that something that sort of came a little bit more into play when you went down there to have this first experience that you were just talking about? 
Ah, that's a really good question. So like, um, always loved knives when I was a little kid, every experience I could with my little Victorinox, um, knife, I would, I would try and do. And, you know, this is before, you know, we really figured out what, what the heck bushcraft is, right? Right. Back in our day, we just called it camping right. where we split wood and, 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 and do all this. And so always growing up watching MacGyver, watching Crocodile Dundee, way too much. Um, here's a guy with a big knife who loves animals, you know, <laughs> always knew I wanted to do something outside and and math was never my strong suit and i never considered myself a really good knife maker ever um i've tried here and there but uh, never was good i never thought about that um but the knife stuff was always an obsession that kind of fell into my lap right after college as a profession so i got very lucky you know if, if you work with any anything wildlife wise you know sometimes it's hard to get a, a good paying job um, while still being able to work outdoors, the yeah the the the, the bushcraft part has always been a very natural, for lack of a better term, I guess, natural part of of uh, your upbringing and always in the back of your head. Then it sort of came out more in expression with the using and the signing of knives. Am I getting that right? I mean, it's trying to get in my own head right for sure but um i, I took uh, survival classes um when when i was uh, even in high school and stuff too with uh, right. okay yeah so like there was still i finally got to like learn that in in the u.s here we were really lucky that you know tom brown started this whole movement along with david westcott um yeah. and and uh, larry dean olson but um the first class I took, I was like, a, I can't remember. And my mom had to drive me to it. And it was by uh, the former head instructor for Tom Brown's school. And, um, you know, that's where I really learned about doing, you know, like proper knife technique and, and all that. So we barely even said the word bushcraft, if I remember right. Nice. And, yeah. and, you know, of course, I had a giant honking knife and he had a little mora and would outcarve me like crazy. <laughs> but um, I started taking classes with... Um, um, what's, uh, with, uh, uh, my main mentor, I would say, which is, uh, Steve Watts from the Shield Museum in, um, okay. Gastonia, uh, rest in peace. He was, um, along with, uh, uh, David Westcott and David Halliday, the castaway, um, consultants. Wow. And they really, really well were known, um, uh, a guy in, in the, uh, um, in the primitive skills mm -hmm. world. Um, but you know, I've never been like hardcore. I've never been a very good hardcore flint napper personally. Um, I've dabbled in it and, and made right. flakes <laughs> and, and stuff, but like there's more of the actual using modern tools for crafting the environment around you that I really enjoyed with bushcraft plus of course, big knives. So the, the writing and, and stuff really helped with it too. So I got to go spend a week and a half with Morris wow. Kahansky um for an article it was just me him and Jesus. chris noble and i got to go around the u.s to to be able to meet some of these you know incredible people through the writing and stuff and and yeah it costs money but it was a tax write-off so i was able to kind of almost sure. bounce it out to be able to have those experiences but um no, you know. that's very that's very cool that that sort of paints um uh a very very nice picture of uh, of uh, who you are besides all the uh, knife making because of course there's 
uh, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, you you you're very well known for it, and you you. I don't know how you identify yourself as a outdoors person, but uh, it's nice to hear a little bit of a, a background story. You know, it it all comes together too. To you guys asked earlier you know, with that, uh, I'm going to circle back to this question: How do you keep inspired and you know keep um you know motivated? Because it's it's hard to design the world's oldest cutting tool. You know, sure, you can't exactly. do that. I, I I keep saying, yeah, I uh. uh didn't design the Utsi knife Utsi did, but you know, I don't, someone taught him. So, you know, uh, right. that it, it's really cool. Cause now at this level, I'm starting to see a, a mixture more of, okay, we needed, uh, this first bushcraft knife with the point down the center line and, and, um, um, you know, a, a hand a grip that, that fits style. for it. Yeah. But now I'm like, now I can start pushing stuff together. Like, so for CGRB, um, th- this is a, a Chinese company I'm working for. I was like, man, what would happen if Kephart and, and, and Applegate, uh, uh, Rex Applegate, which is this um, uh, renowned knife fighter, wrote this book, Killer Be Killed. Uh, okay. uh, we're at a bar just having some beers, <laughs> and they decided to sketch together on a napkin. So uh, I came up with the Rex Hart. Um, okay. and, and that was like a cool amalgam and, and, and for, you know, uh, reptiles, amphibians and, and, and entomology, my background right now, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't have much, you know, I, every bushcrafter has martial arts experience. Uh, I swear, um, and you, you ask him <laughs> and at least half of them are, are black belts in, in something, but, something um, black belt in karate, uh, uh-huh. showed a, yeah, but I, I don't have a lot of karambit experience, but, um, uh, I want to try and design a karambit. So how can I get a story to to make it legit? Well, I'm going to look up a whole bunch of scanned electron micrographs of different ant jaws and base it off of an ant jaw to make a uh, a karambit that's based off of you know nature and and, and make that the selling point. So right and, and right, try right, it on right. flesh. Those shapes, right? Have yeah, and, and then see, and then give that to a tribesman to see what they can tear apart with that, you know, on on fish, and really know oh. about it. So, what a what a what a, a oh. privileged position to be able to create a tool for someone that can genuinely like use it in in their sort of uh, livelihoods. I, I essentially. Not, yeah, it's not a hobby. Really, exactly. yeah. I, I never really thought about it, you know, like that to design stuff for, you know, those tribes. I just see what, you know, they're using. But um, it can. I mean, the, the machetes that I give them, yeah, take. They, it's one of the most important things, especially to the Matisse tribe, that they, they take back with them. But we had, you know, the, the hobby thing is really interesting, too, because we had a flint napper on the last trip and he brought a bunch of nap of, of um, Flint and nap some obsidian and they were tripped. The Matisse were oh, wow. tripped out by the obsidian. They just loved using it. They couldn't believe how sharp it was. Okay. So they bring over wow. their primitive thing that they still love, which is an agouti tooth. Um, I think, no, it might be capybara. It's a rodent tooth. You guys got the idea. It's two little, you know, buck teeth um, okay. that are curved, and they have it attached right. <laughs> on a really long handle, and they're using yeah. this to make channels for blowguns, okay. and they like it because it's self-sharpening, okay. just like rodents' um, teeth when they have to gnaw and stuff. So, right. you know, it's it's really cool to, yeah, I'm designing something made of metal, right. and that's pretty cool that they're, you know, doing that, but seeing that to them, you know, appreciate that and going... Yeah, we sometimes have to break a bottle of uh, glass to gut our electric eel. I'm just like, oh man, you can't make that up, Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, and, for sure. 
But but Joe, I mean, you're saying things. You're saying things like, "Oh well, as you know, uh, you know, it's basically a yeah. matter." It's like, I love the level of like speciality that you're going down. Where in, it's like this. I, I, the 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 enthusiasm <laughs> for something that of, of so niche is incredible. And yeah, I don't. I, I'm I'm just I'm taking a backseat here. I'm uh, just enjoying the ride. Know, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm re- uh, it, it's not. It's not often you hear someone being so enthusiastic <laughs> about what they do yeah well, very, i mean it's, it's, it's quite it's infectious, you do yeah. sometimes like i'm not i'm so unbelievably blessed to be able to do what i do but sometimes it's hard guys like going up and going man i need to sit behind the autocad yeah. you know for three sure. hours when then a new release of overwatch or something came out so there 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 is that level of like right. you know <laughs> and that sounds like the world's smallest violins but i'm also a stay-at-home dad too so you know doing that and balancing no, all that you. is 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 difficult and i got really really lucky to where i'm at but also I'm telling you, man, this niche stuff, it's, it's fun. Um, and this is something when I went to the, uh, it is. I, I tell you what, this is something that, you know, I love the, the global part of Bushcraft Global and, and the global Bushcraft Symposium is just teaching me how, how different mm. the world is. When, that was my first time in the UK. And, and yeah, I wanted to talk oh, to you about that. Right. The, the craziest yeah, thing, the craziest thing for me about this, um, was not realizing how foreign machetes are to, to people in Europe. And, and, and I'm talking niche. This is yeah, something niche. Yeah. I, I challenge, and I really hope somebody will find, find it, but I challenge somebody to find a bigger machete collection than I have. I think I have the world's biggest <laughs> um, civilian machete collection, but I could be wrong. There could be a guy with a bunch of right, um, right. Indonesian prangs out there. Um, and, and that's because there's no other idiot that would uh, do that, I think. Um, but then realizing how callous I am just walking around in, in, uh, at, at the, at the global bushcraft symposium with a big giant machete dangling next to me and how people were just, I just went through and made like a, a tent pole real quick. And next thing I knew there was a, uh, a, a crowd around me and I'm like, did you guys not see the Ray Mears episode or, you know, with the Parangs? I, I couldn't believe how different it, it just blows me away. And I know I'm naive, like even the Americans think I'm nuts, but you know, it's. Well, yeah, I think in the UK, obviously, like they've mm-hmm. got very strict knife laws and rightly so, because there is a lot of knife crime and things. Um, and so knife, knife uh, sort of carry is very much frowned upon in general, let alone yeah. sort of parangs or, or sort of machetes. And then I suppose when you're talking about people that watched Ray Mears and stuff, for the most part, um, he's, I mean, he's not using the parang when he's in, you know, uh, the Peak mm-hmm. District or anything like that. He's using them when he's in the jungles and things. And I think a lot of people that you would find at the, such as the Glo- Global Bushcraft Symposium, particularly if they're from a UK audience, they're going to be coming at it from the four inch blade sort of uh, standard bushcraft sort of tool. And yeah, I mean, I, I would, if I saw someone with a, with a parang or, or, a, or a machete walking around in, in the UK in general, I would think either they're going to go rob a, you know, a garage or they're going to, uh, I don't know. I really don't know <laughs> why you would need something like that in, in the UK, but it, but it just shows you, I suppose that, you know, uh, 
things that seem normal to us are very strange to other people. And I suppose even on a, on a general basis, just bushcraft and outdoors in general can seem quite strange to, to, to normal people even. like, And when I yeah. say normal people, I mean people that are not us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, it was really cool, though, too, to, to realize that there's so many more people who don't realize you know, what, what, how amazing that, that tool is. And then it, the fact that it's just me doing it, and I'm like, oh God, they should see some of the indigenous I work with because they're, you know, they're, what do they do when they don't have any bugs around? And yeah, sometimes that happens in the jungle. Oh, they just whittle off a piece of their callus on their foot and then put it on the hook and catch a piranha, dice that up and use that for more bait. And like, it, it, it's, you know, hard to realize that like there's that level of comfort. Yeah. Yeah, there's that level of comfort with tools that like everybody can can learn about, and I think that's fascinating too. And you know, even up up where you guys are, there's big knife culture there too. There's the puk or the leku, you know, big knife, small knife. Yeah, yeah the leku. Yeah. It's like the the sami. It's it's about seven seven or eight inches roughly, but that's about as big. Yeah, as it gets. I um at some point in life when my wife lets me, I'm gonna come up there and watch what they do with those. Um, cause I mean, a big knife, a, a small knife and a reindeer was my favorite, my mentor's favorite joke about, uh, the Sami survival kit. Um, but there's that rich culture up there and, you know, it kind of happened in the U S too, with the, with the taming of the, um, indigenous here. Uh, uh, you know, as sad as a story that is, um, when there was somebody trying to scalp you from like far away, you wanted them, you know, 18 inches away instead of four inches away <laughs> when they're trying to go for your, for your head. But then when they didn't have to start um, defending themselves and, and recreation camp became popular for recreation, not just wartime, you started seeing Kephart's four inch blade and Nesmik's four inch blade and these smaller hunting blades that were, you know, the, the genesis of, or the change in, in big knife to small knife culture. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be learned. So many more skills that could be learned from big knife culture. Yeah, that's very interesting. I've never, never thought of it from from that perspective of of uh, like. It it sounds so obvious when I say this out loud. Like historical use of a knife has been, like you're saying, like it's it it it's been a both a, a weapon and a self-defense tool and all of these things as, as well as a tool to butcher and cut up bread and whatnot and once that sort of era slowly disappeared the the need for a fighting type of knife within air quotes now also sort of disappeared so that's that's very that's very very interesting to look at it from that perspective yeah. as we're talking i just found a black palm spine in my uh, thumb that's great. Um, so it is It is said that machete fighting is one of the uh, last remaining actual sword fights that happen regularly. Um, and, I, and I believe it, too. I mean, it's an agricultural tool, but, you know, people get drunk at bars and then they smash these things on the ground. And then they also um, – this is actually pretty nice. Um, I actually like this idea. Um, you can slap somebody with the side of a machete, and it's kind of like this old school term called planazo. Um, where it's kind of like a, a pimp slap with the machete. Um, and, and they do that when they're fighting, you know, until it got real. Um, but like it's it said that, uh, you know, gangbusters will beat up people this way so they can still go make money. But what I find it super interesting for is for getting like if there's a bad dog coming up to me 
you know, I can spank it out of the way. I don't have to hack it to bits because um, that'd be traumatizing to me. I really like dogs, even if they're mean. Um, and so I found that really, really handy. Yeah, that's that's a yeah that 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 that's a, that's a whole sort of different perspective of the use of a a big knife because that is really knowledge that is lost at least in in the regions where i reside of and probably in a lot of other places of the world where big knives are not common to that extent anymore and what you can actually use it for it's not just a a long cutting edge there's there's so much more to it you know and and the the other thing is um i was told this by um imakasa which is uh, condor tool and knife's parent company um, and guys, this is another reason why I'm so obsessed with machetes. They, they make over 40,000 machetes a month, <laughs> but he said, Hey, you know, oh, wow. this is an agricultural tool for the poor man. It's a poor man's tool. This is where areas where they can't afford big farming or, or John Deere's and stuff too. And, and so you'll still see combat, you know, blade combat, quote unquote, in those areas today. But that really, you know, influenced me to think, okay, well, where do you see, you know, these, these cultures more in the Indonesian, the Philippines, you even see fishmongers at markets and, um, you know, uh, China and places use some of these big blades, but where they have bigger processing, you know, such as in the U S you don't see a machete so much anymore. These big blades but where there's a where there are people who are i don't know i'm trying to piece through this thought but when there are people who are uh, more um reliant on the land because of economy means and they're using a big blade they start doing a lot more big bladed bushcraft you know that way so alberto yeah, yeah, can, that, it makes sense it makes, yeah it, 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 it makes perfect sense you use you use what you have rather than being able to go out and buy the latest greatest all the time yeah in in you know for food too i mean like if they don't want to work that week and it's a week's wages they'll just go out and hunt you know fish with the machete and and so there's a lot of this bushcraft you know, what we would, you know, quote unquote, call bushcraft in these terms out there that are still just barely coming to the surface. And, you know, with big blades, it's a great way for me to niche and focus, but it still fascinates me, you know, and, 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 and motivates, you know, to just be like, Hey man, I want to go up to the, I want to, I did a rod up to the Sami reindeer herders and learn about their big blades. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the, uh, when you're saying it, I can, I can sort of see how much, um, just axe knowledge and axemanship and skills are also slowly being, I'm doing quotation marks again, lost because there's no one really anymore. There are, of course, a handful of people that needs to use an axe in the way uh, bushcrafters want to use an axe when they're in the forest for their profession anymore. Of course, like you, you right. know, to become proficient with an axe, you don't use a chainsaw. You need to use an axe a lot, and to fell trees with an axe, it's a completely different thing. And it's of course you can learn the techniques of it, but there's so much nuance in all of these things that is being lost by the fact that we don't have a, a industry that is based on people being out there with access anymore. 
Now, in, in the U.S. with axes, we had a very, very rich heritage of specialized axes, just like machetes yeah. from, from every region. You know, the Jersey axe, the, the, um, uh, the cedar axe, the, uh, yeah. a, a billion axes. I can't believe I can't say a billion of them all at once. Michigan, the cruiser, blah, 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 blah. Because there was such a good resource you know, before the time of, of chainsaws when people came up here. So, of course, the Americans think we all know how to use axes and stuff, and we really don't, not like we used to. And, you know, the oddest thing, you bring that up, the oddest thing is all the axemen down in the forest and stuff who do the logging, and there are some down there, and we meet them. Um, they're not illegal loggers. They just take one out of a thing because they're allowed to, because they're indigenous, but they're way better at fixing a chainsaw than they are at doing anything with their axe. And we only bring, you know, craft axes out and all that. And they had this weird way of flinging their axe, which uh, uh, does this. But um, you, you see that there, everybody's an excellent chainsaw fixer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's 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 also a, a sign sign of the times and and uh, and and financial buying power power, I guess. Like it's it's there's trees down there they call the axe handle tree where you can take a chunk out of it and make a paddle or make an axe handle with it. Um, but you know, they, they barely, not everybody knows about that. And, um, they're, they're even losing that. You know, I see it from one Matisse to the next, you know, from one generation. Cause we, we do, we take the pre-contact people out on our trips. Um, what I mean by that is guys who were alive before the time of metal, before the time of clothes, they tell us that story. Um, and we've had post contact Matisse. So kids who were born right, um, after the time and who work in Atalaya a little bit, and they're just not the same human, um, you know, because there's such a, a crazy change. And that's just from one generation. I only think I have like five years left with these guys, but you see that down there, you see it everywhere. And I think maybe bushcraft is us trying to get back to some of that. It definitely is. And I think, um, it is it that is incredibly poignant and it's kind of sad but it's also in i mean also a huge privilege to be able to actually learn some skills from these people however i do feel like it's kind of like you know these are not skills that we would genuinely rely on to survive and so learning the skills is very much a privilege that we should obviously respect but what i was going to ask you was because I always think about this uh, in terms of like there's there's certain. Sc- hey, let me let me jump in there. Yeah, go uh, for it real quick because I have a good good point with that. The Matisse really like me and what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, they've told me personally because I pay them to keep their skills right, current and alive. Sure, um, and they get to do some of the stuff, and they really really love doing that because they're like nice. we can just do what we have on a Monday, and it keeps us employed and and okay. and you know makes us proud. That is absolutely and So they told me that one time, which I like. Yeah, yeah, know? for but sure. Ahead, no, 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 absolutely. And that's a really fair point is that, you know, these people are, are, are also benefiting from, uh, well, essentially white people coming and learning uh, indigenous sort of skills. And there's, of course, nothing wrong with that as long as it's a mutually beneficial sort of relationship. Um, but what I was going to ask you was, are, are there any sort of skills that you feel that people um, that practice bushcraft in the Western world, for want of a better word, um, are sort of missing out on. Because if I almost feel like sometimes that there's a very sort of strict criteria, almost like a curriculum, 
of like bushcraft skills. And I feel like, well, how come the and and I, and I suppose what stemmed this sort of question was like not just your experience in the jungle, but also you've got the etymology background and zoology and things like that. And it's like it's like oh well. Ray Mears doesn't talk about how to, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a really random thing, like how to, yeah, I, I really can't think of anything off the top of my head. Or machete. Yeah, exactly. It's a good example. Um, do you think that there's a, there's some, there's some sort of a gap in the sort of the conventional uh, bushcraft education, for want of a better word, that people could be exploring more? Yes, um, I, I really do. And, and honestly, it can be summed up by saying actually doing it. Um, which I am, <laughs> I went to the jungle last trip and I barely carved anything. Right. I just was testing knives. Right. Um, but like people go, they take the classes and then crickets, mm -hmm. nothing. Okay. I've done the bow drill. Okay. I've done this. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've made a kuksa. Well, you know, the, I think the expeditionary part where people just go out and practice the skills and, and it can be anything from drinking beer around a campfire, you know, making Pepsi can stoves. Right. Um, all the way to uh, uh, coming on a on an expeditionary trip with a company. Um, I, I think you know people. We tend to, and this is hilarious that I'm saying this too, since I work for gear companies and review gear. Um, we tend to rely on 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 gear a mm -hmm. lot more than us doing stuff with it. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And, and and I think just putting putting yourself out there to be like, okay, today I'm going to do the, you know, something challenge, and and we try to get bow drills down in the jungle, which we normally, you know, we just do when there's a bushcrafter who feels like it there. Mm -hmm. And he wants to test himself doing mm -hmm. it down there to see what he can get. And mm -hmm. then he's learn from it and you get to learn knife skills. You get to learn tool craft, but you also get your hands to actually grip the things. Sure. You know, we can read books so much, but it's just whittling in your backyard too. Do, do you think, uh, do you think this sort of, um, th this sort of stems of a, a general public, uh, lack of, connection to nature like we once had this sort um, of uh, yes sort of uh, wanting to do follow this sort of curriculum and very skill skills focused thing while you're saying that sometimes it's just sitting around a campfire having a beer and that's just much of a outdoors experience as, as learning a specific skill right right i mean you could be um, sitting out there having a beer, sweating over a fire by friction in front of your friends to, to get it. But like they, you know, it kind of yeah. feels like I have to be in, in, in this situation in order to do mm. this, um, particular, you know, skill set. when it could just be like, you know, you don't have to get your complete fire making, you know, kit out and do everything, all the measurements up. Why don't you try and make a, a tester kit or, or break the rules where you can take a piece of wood and put it in your bow drill spindle and then shake out that wood right. and try different wood and, you know, do that. So it seems like, you, you know, once people get their bushcraft, you know, like certifications and what whatnot, like some people just stop or, or use that to teach more. It's more like rather a, bo than a do box. It. You'll see it's like a box taking exercise yeah. more than anything else. Right. And, and you'll, you'll see it a lot, like even on some of these shows and things where it's just people who just instruct and right. instruct and instruct and instruct instead of going out there and just trying stuff for, for mm. fun, which I am, um, also, uh, American expression calling the kettle black on that one. Right. Okay, so I need to, uh, go, <laughs> I, I, I need to brush up on my hand drills so much and, and, and things along that line. But, um, yeah. And then people think they have to have a reason for everything. I know like, okay, I must have this stove from zebra if i'm gonna go out there sure 
Um, that, and, that, and, that is crippling man. for sure. I mean, I, yeah. and yeah, to their wallet. <laughs> yeah. For me, I mean, I mean, like I've, I mean, Jeremy's so sick of hearing me talk about this right now, but I kind of recently got into bike packing and like, you know, uh, taking a bicycle and packing all my shit on it. And I last week came back from a trip in Sweden where I was using a different bike that I wasn't used to. And I was kind of slightly freaking out about it because I had up to this point been sort of building this bike where I was like, okay, I need like the side thing so I can hold my, you know, uh, my sleeping bag there. And I have, you know, my Primus with me. So that's going to sit here and stuff. And then we ended up using completely different bikes. And I was like, oh shit, man, how am I going to fit this on? How am I going to do that? And, you know, but I was sort of forced to do the trip regardless of the fact that it wasn't my own bike. And I think it was actually a really good experience because it real I realized halfway through the trip where it was like, actually, it doesn't really matter. It's like the experience, not the kit that I'm using, actually, that's making this fun, you know, or making this a learning experience. You know, you know and, and to, to back up to um, what we asked about, about, you know, do you ever get tired of it and stuff too? Sometimes I, in, in writing and stuff, I would get tired of always going outside and feeling like, man, I have to have this kit out because I have to write an article on it or I have to test this knife out. I like now, th- this past few years, I've been, you know, using other people's knives and trying stuff that I didn't design so I can challenge myself differently instead of thinking and picking on every single, you know, thing, just saying, all right, do I have the skill to use, you know, this person's bike instead of my bike? Mm. And, and yeah, exactly. And exactly. It, it was, it's refreshing. It, it's awesome. Do I have the skill instead of using yeah. my zebra pot to go, to go make a, I don't know, a, a coffee can pot and boil out of that and be like, wow. You're just- you yeah, know. you're you're handed a an average like a, a thrift store billy can, and you're like just deal with what you got. And it's like okay, that that yeah. can also be super rewarding, and it kind of also removes the preciousness from your kid as well. When you're sort of like like if you've got your zebra pot, or if you've got your falcon yeah. even, or your whatever, um, that you're trying to kind of almost to be precious with. It's like if you're given a uh, a peach can or something you're like well you know i, I uh, do the same and now i'm just like give me anything that that'll work and and it, it, it's refreshing but it also teaches at least for me it helps me incorporate things into designs better um so i'm using somebody else's uh knife design and, oh man now i really like choils instead of thinking i hate all choils and Maybe like a different fork setup on the new thing. So, you know, challenging yourself not to obey the rules um, is, you know, within safety's reason is is fun. Okay, have you done a, have you made a spatula with just an axe, you know, only or just a machete only, or or have you done a, have you done a one stick, you know, fire making right, uh, exactly, uh, thing yeah. with a ferro rod with only your axe, you know, there, you know, there, there are ways where people can break out of that i mean it, it, it you, you will see that quite a bit and that must be quite refreshing in in the area that you work in down in in the jungle joe but like up up here uh and where like where where, where i grew up and where i live people that are outside and people that would probably be defined as very well versed and skilled outdoors men and women they 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 could they couldn't they couldn't care less about what says on their axe or on their knife as long as it cuts and do the do the job or they don't couldn't care less about what boots or shoes or or pants or jacket that they're wearing as long as they do the job and every now and then you have a little bit more money and then you can spend on on that premium axe that you've seen in the store but it's not the the sort of same research and 
you must sort of see see the same thing in in South America, and it it does does that feel quite liberating knowing that the designs that you do and that you can bring down there it is appreciated in a completely different way compared to maybe someone that is extremely into knives and is a critic before they've even swung it or use it used it if that makes sense yeah yeah boxing reviews you know well a it really sucks to have uh, alberto the yukuna he's one of my friends um out carve me with an old broken broken butcher knife that he has on his hip um when i bring like a 300 dollar knife down so it's not the it's not the bow it's the archer um but uh one of the best <laughs> and and most um incredible uh uh inspiring times i had down there as far as knife design was um at kokoma um uh indigenous who was also our boat driver uh stayed with us last year on the trip and just a great guy and um he doesn't carve too much he knew how to carve boat paddles he made that abundantly clear like five of them um and he used <laughs> this one machete i call the polar north um and the polar north is this weird uh parang ish design with the point down the center line it's a really unique style knife and he used it the whole time and he pulled me over with um, a translator even though i speak spanish i can always speak better and i wanted to make sure i knew um what he was saying exactly and so gordon comes over and he goes joe He's been using this machete for three hours and he loves this machete design. He says it's a very, very good design. And, um, you know, we, we looked at it and uh, we, we've talked about what things could change. But the fact that he loved that design that, you know, I created with the multi-use handle and all that, you know, above what he's known all his life was like, oh, gosh, that was you know, really, really rewarding for me. I could get all the YouTube acclamations and, and stuff and, and Amazon reviews because, you know, I'm American, um, you know, that, that you want. But hearing that from him, that was super cool. And, and so that was really special. That was one time where we taught them something or he taught me something and he learned something. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. That must be super rewarding having uh, that sort of very, very... Um, Un- unfiltered and honest like is, is is this good or not and it's not it's not wrapped up in all the the um, knife marketing or, or knife lingo words of like how this could be better because of this it's just like this works yay or nay from people that use it to the extension extend uh, uh, extension it's it's designed for yeah and and also you know not just like you guys said picking it up and looking at it after 10 minutes and then giving a review you know it, it really really just blew me away so that that's you know something that's always going to be inspiring to me and really motivates me to get going you know with it i'm kind of like during the winter time um in north carolina because guys uh, i'm lucky to get down there maybe 15 days to a month um during the year when my wife lets me but um during the winter time you know I, i'm still trying to do stuff but that's when i get into this design phase of of all right what can we do to improve on something and you know yeah right Right. One of the guys in uh, Knives and Tools, actually, that I work with, um, he wanted to ask me to ask you, what makes a Joe Flares knife? Like, what is there a signature that 
because obviously there's such a huge range of knives and they're all everything from spears to parangs to smaller knives to really like you know really nice with the fiddleback forge knives or you know the really entry-level ones at the condor end of things do you think that there's there's a signature or sort of a through line that goes through your work um that is maybe not necessarily visible but maybe for your in your own well head, i have to uh, with, with some of the companies I, I have to do such your a wide every, every range of change there, to be able to work with each company so i try not to have too much of a signature even though most of the knives are designed for my hand instead of like a big dude's hand um but so the there like that would be cool if i had like a signature hole or, or something along that line. But hopefully, except for once in a while when I have to design, you know, like a sword that's just meant to be a sword, you know, most of the designs are, are still useful, you know, in every aspect of, of bushcraft, I'm hoping. It's going to be hard designing a bushcraft karambit, though. I'm going to be serious. That's going to be a, a tough one. It's going to have to fuzz stick really well and do... No, yeah, no, out. I was going to say, I don't think I've ever been in a conversation with someone where they say, oh, yeah, this next sword I have to design. Uh, it's gonna, <laughs> it's just like <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. Actually, I have it here, the prototype <laughs> on my table, and it's awesome. Well, nice. It's uh, uh, I got to figure out how I'm going to mount it into a potato cannon to really test it, though. That, that must really be like a childhood dream. I mean, I would I, I would definitely I would love remember. to see a video of a sword being shot, shot out of a potato. Cannon. <laughs> um, I'm thinking I think it weighs too much. Honestly, I don't know if there's enough propulsion. I'm like looking at it now and uh, we'll have to figure it out. Maybe some kind of pneumatic one. Just have to scale up the potato cannon. Yeah, you're right. We designed this one around testing swords. <laughs> exactly. well, Joe. Yes, sir. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming. Absolutely. Yeah. I could talk. Hey, where can we learn more about your podcast and stuff? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you could, it would be great to see you maybe share it on your pages. It would be really cool. Um, sure. It's on the on instagram is where where it's mostly active sure sure okay but i was going to ask you this, the same question where can people find out about uh what you're up to and what you're doing um instagram facebook uh and and um also uh, bushcraftglobal.com although it's a uh, bad website because you know we, we like bushcrafting not not web hosting for you know hours on end right. i'll update it guys that, and we're that's the problem not yeah and um uh, so those are the big ones tiktok now i'm going to the dark side i think okay because it's perfect for my oh, uh no. like i'm going to be doing a tiktok after i'm done with you guys and me cleaning out my air fil- my uh, water filter from the jungle and it should be hilarious all right all right that's a i mean i mean uh <laughs> I, I, I don't really have any words. I want to see it, but right. I don't really know why. And content, like you can make content out of everything. Yeah, this is, it's, I mean, it's just coffee coming out of it. It's hilarious. But, um, well, we'll see. I'll figure it out once they stage it or whatever. So, yeah, that those would be the best places. Um, Instagram's probably the best way to get a hold of me, although I'm available on all, all forms. Um, and be looking for more stuff coming up here in the future. I, uh, I, I would, I would love to talk to you at some point a little bit more about the zoology and, uh, field work side of, of, uh, what you've been doing in, uh, in terms of, you mentioned a little bit of restoration and things like that and how that can yeah. tie back into both bushcraft and, and just designing everything 
I'll leave that one because I'd love to come back on a cliffhanger. I'd yeah. like to use Bushcraft Global to find a new frog species to science that um, I currently have uh, as a possible. Okay, that's a that's a that's a great cliffhanger. We'll have to um, talk to talk to to you more about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Flowers on Entrabe Fire Part Two. Awesome, coming soon. Yeah. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, absolutely. When uh, when you found a new species of a frog? Uh, well, so five new frogs have been found already to science um, on the property where my buddy does his knife making, and the uh, oh wow, um, this last one is some sort of hemidactylus, and I've got Colombian guys stumped, um, Colombian herpetologists stumped, and we can't key it out. Um, so uh, like this was like cool. seven years ago. Um, and we got good documentation of it, but we need to get three more specimens um, and actually freaking pickle them and do all the genome stuff to find out if it's an actual species. But that's going to be maybe a themed expedition. Um, and oh, there's a lot cool. of herpetology going on down there. I mean, we had uh, we had this guy working on electric fish while we were down there in the hut next to us because the ecotourism uh, reserve, eco reserve uh, has people down there all the time. Um, and yeah, so there's so much science that can just happen right there. So cool. That's very so cool. cool. I That's love, cool. I love someone uh, who is extremely passionate about knives and then is also finding frogs that nobody has ever seen before. I think that's, that, that for me is, it's, it's hard. I'm not an academia. Dude, anymore. that is the most niche thing I could possibly. <laughs> 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 no, it's, it's super cool, man. And yeah, we should definitely talk again on this podcast. It would be so cool to have you on. Sure. Yeah. But Joe, uh, um, in reciprocal, are you interested in meeting anybody who I might be able to hook you up with? Like, um, Craig from nature reliance. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. We, okay. we, uh, our, yeah, our schedules kind of sure. got a little bit crosses, you know, like last week Sure. I was in that, I was on that trip in, uh, in Sweden, which I was supposed to actually speak to you last week. And this week was supposed to be Craig. Um, so yeah, maybe we could. Oh, so you got him signed up? Okay. No, cool. no, no, I haven't yet. But I think uh, it uh, would it would be cool to do that. So maybe we can we can talk after this and we can we can get something uh, sure signed up. Um, awesome. But hey, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really, really cool to talk to you. I love your enthusiasm and your energy for what you do. It's completely infectious. And oh, I'm great. And I'm sure people are going to love uh, listening to uh, kind of what you're doing. Have a good evening and thank you all for joining us and listening. Um, Joe, it's been a pleasure. 